We are on schedule to finish the book of Matthew the week before Christmas. And that's good news because you won't have to endure any Christmas sermons, which is also good news for me. And uh, we'll, we'll have done the book of Matthew in two years, which for us is like an astounding rate of movement, two years. We're looking at a long passage of scripture this morning in Matthew 21. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 46. The title of the sermon is Rejecting Loving Authority. So a lot of scripture to read right now. Uh, Give yourself to it. We'll be testing your reading comprehension toward the end. You'll have to answer some questions for me. So uh, pay attention and we'll actually go back through and read it all again as we're teaching the text. So we ought to all get this. Reading and preaching from the NIV this morning, starting in verse 23 of Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven... He'll ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus continued, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he didn't go. Which of the two did what the father wanted, Jesus asked. The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Jesus continues, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, Jesus asked. And they replied, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give his share of the crop at harvest time. Give him a share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd 
because the people held that he was a prophet. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth that your word is and the truth that is in your word that is before us. And we ask that in the house of God today, your truth would reign, that your truth would come against any lies that are over our lives, any lies that we're believing, any lies that we're giving into or functioning out of, that the truth about Jesus and what he's done for us and what he's called us to in this glorious love and this great grace would reign in our hearts and our minds and in our church. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd make us alive to the truth of God. That if need be, you waken us in our deepest parts of our spirit, in our hearts, in our minds. We'd be alive and attentive to the word of God. And that you would help us not only comprehend it, but to live it for our good and for the glory of Jesus. And we ask together, Lord, please, that you would anoint me to teach and preach in a way that is faithful to the Bible, brings glory to Jesus, and is helpful to the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can tell by the content of the text as well of the length, as the length of the text that we have before us a mega confrontation between Jesus and the usual antagonists that we run to, into in the book of Matthew. Here it's the chief priests and the elders of the people. And this confrontation happens while Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. And the teaching that Jesus would have been doing in the temple courts during this time, this week of Passover here, this week leading up to the cross, would have been a bit of an informal affair. It wouldn't be like this where, you know, Jesus had a pulpit and everyone came in and they sat down and then he taught. That wasn't what happened in the temple. That kind of happened in synagogues. But here he's in the temple. It's a little more more informal. If a teacher in Israel or a rabbi had something they wanted to teach, they would usually set themselves up on the southern steps of the temple courts. And then they would begin to speak and a crowd might gather and hear what this rabbi said. And there would be lots of different rabbis doing that at different times. So Jesus is doing that. He's teaching in the temple. It's not abnormal. It's not necessarily a uh, formal affair. But there is, in Jesus' teaching at the temple at this moment, some deep symbolism that we're reminded of. You'll remember that this is a certain week in the book of Matthew. The rest of the book of Matthew compromises one week that spans from the triumphal entry to his resurrection. And right now we're somewhere around Tuesday or Wednesday of that week in our text. Jesus is teaching in the temple. The deep symbolism here to remember is that it was Passover week. And on the Sunday of that week that we studied a couple weeks ago, when Jesus was making his entry into Jerusalem, every Jewish male of every Jewish household would be choosing during this time and for thousands of years before a lamb that would be the Passover lamb that would commemorate and celebrate the time that Jesus, excuse me, God delivered them from slavery to Egypt. So they would choose a lamb that represented the lamb that they killed during that Exodus story that caused God to pass over them. They would bring the lamb into the house for two purposes. One was that they might develop some connections to this lamb. That was a real thing. So they would see, wow, this is a cute little spotless, furry, happy lamb. And at the end of the week, we're going to slaughter it. 
as a sacrifice for our own sins and that God might pass over us in judgment. So that was to be very real and like visceral and experiential for Israel. But the second reason the father would bring it into the household was so that they could observe it for a few days to make sure that it was a lamb without blemish, a pure and spotless lamb, because that was the only kind of sacrifice that was acceptable before God. Now, the day that every Jewish uh, household was choosing their lamb was the same day that Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem, the lamb seated on a donkey. And it was God fulfilling thousands of years of promises and celebrations being acted out. It was God saying, this is my lamb that I have given to my household, Israel. Remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw him during his ministry? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was Jesus being presented as the Lamb of God. And now Jesus is in the house of God, the temple, being observed by the household of God, Israel, as the pure and spotless one. So, so there's much more to his teaching than just like, here's a rabbi teaching. There's this deep symbolism of the lamb present in the midst of the household of Israel to show that he was pure, undefiled, without sin, separate from sinners. And those who sang Hosanna early in the week would actually be singing, crucify him at the end of the week. So this forms a backdrop to Jesus' teaching. During that moment, the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders of the people come up and they interrupt him and they have questions about his authority. And the reason they're wondering about his authority is because Jesus displayed tremendous authority in the last couple days. First of all, there was that whole entry thing on the donkey into Jerusalem, which was clearly set up to be a proclamation of his kingship. And then he gets into the temple that day And he denounces the activity that's going on there and he flips over the tables and he flips over the chairs and he says, you guys are acting like a bunch of robbers in my house, which is to be a house of prayer. He was acting with tremendous authority when he did that. And then after that, people came up to him who were in need of healing and he healed them, a great display of his authority. The next day, he caused that tree that had leaves but no fruit, a symbol of Israel in their spiritually barren state to wither just at a word of his, another demonstration of his great authority. And now he's teaching on the temple grounds. And what we know about Jesus it says a multitude of times in the Gospels, is that he taught as one having authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. What that means is he broke from the traditional way of teaching in Israel during the time. The way that teachers normally taught, they would be a rabbi, a teacher, and they would get up and they'd say something like, Rabbi Akiba said... And they would quote what he said. And then on that authority, they might say a couple things about that. Rabbi Shammai said, Rabbi Hillel said, and they always stood in line and on the shoulders of rabbinical authorities that had come before them in Israel. That was a normal way that every rabbi during that time taught. Jesus did none of that. Jesus didn't quote any rabbis. He didn't appeal to any other authority. In fact, he would even say, you heard Moses say, but I'm saying to you in the Sermon on the Mount. So he was acting with unseen authority in the life of Israel and on the temple grounds from his entry to the cleansing of the temple, to the healings, to the cursing of the tree, to the way that he was teaching. And the normal religious authorities are a little perturbed by this. 
because they were generally the body in Israel that would credential someone, right? This is a question about credentials. Jesus, where are you getting the nerve doing this stuff? Who said you could do this? Because they were the ones who would normally authorize someone to have that sort of authority in the life of Israel. And what they see in their questioning of Jesus is that they will ultimately reject his authority. That's what they're after here. They're going to eject, excuse me, reject the authority of Jesus. Very importantly, they're not going to reject the authority of Jesus because it was unbelievable or that it was non-evidential or that it was unclear as to the authority and the power that he had. Rather, they are going to reject the authority of Jesus because they are sinful. It wasn't an issue of faith. It was an issue of rebellion in their hearts. What we see in the religious leaders here, and I want you to catch this because this will be important for us toward the end of the sermon, is that what is in view here in their rejection of Jesus' authority is willful unbelief that chooses not to believe because it doesn't want to be under the authority of Christ. It's not an issue of faith. It's an issue of willingness to obey and trust or not. This is willful unbelief that chooses not to trust what Jesus says and who he claimed to be as an authority because it didn't want to be under that authority. So with that background in mind, let's go look at a few of these verses again and get these details. We'll just start in verse 23 one more time and read just a couple of verses. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you that authority? Jesus replied, I'll also, I'll also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, right? He's talking about John the Baptist. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, gosh, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people because they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, it's important to understand in this exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders that their motives were not pure. Because Jesus is going to get pretty gnarly on these guys in a few verses. He's going to drill down pretty deep in their heart condition. These guys are not coming to Jesus with pure motives, honestly asking like, oh, Jesus, you know, who are you do these awesome things? Like, who are you, dude? We want to believe. We already know their motives from what we read in John chapter 11 a few weeks ago, what they were planning at this very time. John chapter 11 says, so from that day on, that is the day that he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, they plotted to kill Jesus. So there's some serious stuff going on in their hearts. There's some serious background motives. They don't want to play their hand too boldly. And yet what we see in the interchange is that Jesus knows their motives. He always knows. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. And he knows that if he simply answers their question at that moment and says, by whose authority? Bro, I'm God in the flesh, dude. Like, I'm the son of God. That's by what authority? If he says that in that moment, then he knows that they will immediately accuse him of blasphemy and there'll be a bit of drama and an uproar there on the temple steps. Now, that will happen later in the week. They will accuse him of blasphemy and they will sway the crowd and there will be shouts to crucify him. But Jesus has a little more heart work he wants to do in them and on them before he just gives them a simple answer. So he presents that dilemma to them. 
Okay, look, you answer this question, I'll answer yours. John the Baptist, was he like a prophet of God? Was that from heaven? Or was he just making that stuff up and that was from people? And that proposed, that's a real dilemma for them. Because John the Baptist's entire ministry was about the coming of Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the only unique Savior of the whole world. So if they say, well, what everybody knew back then is that John the Baptist was a prophet of God, then Jesus is like, well, why didn't you believe him? Why are you asking me my credentials? He was talking about me. But if they say, you know, well, it was just a human thing. He was just making that up. They're in real danger because everybody knew that John the Baptist was a prophet and a prophet in Israel who was martyred by a Roman vassal king. That's like a big deal. You don't mess with John the Baptist. So these guys are in a serious quandary, and so they lie. Okay, I want you to get this. I want you to remember this. Because they refuse to accept the truth about Jesus and his authority in their lives, they have to then function from a place of dishonesty. I want you to remember that for the end of the sermon. Because they refuse to accept Jesus' authority, they have to begin to function from a space of dishonesty. So they don't get their answer from Jesus directly there, but he's going to give them an answer, but he's going to give it to them not in a simple statement, but in a few big stories. He now tells them those couple of parables. And in doing that, Jesus is going to do what the parables always do, kind of get down to the heart of the matter and and, and the root of the issue and a, a main spiritual point that he wants them to get and he wants us to get as well. And he's going to do it in a sort of like broad sweep of Israel's history in a vivid, historical, narrative, robust sort of way. So he starts in on this parable immediately on the heels of saying, I'm not going to answer your question. He says in verse 28, well, what do you think? All right, he's getting them to think. There's a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. I will not, he answered. Every parent can relate to that. But he later changed his mind and went. Hopefully we can relate to that too. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, yeah, sure, dad, I'll go work in the field. And he didn't. Jesus asked them, which of the two did, his, uh, did what his father wanted? And they answered with the obvious answer, the first, duh. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So this is a parable that Jesus gives. The the purpose of a parable is usually to reveal a singular spiritual truth. And what Jesus is doing when he uses parables, when anybody uses a parable, is using common points of reference to bring out, illustrate, shed light on deep things. So you always got to kind of get what the points of reference are here. So he talks about these two different sons. The first son who just says... uh, No, no, dad, I'm I'm not going to do that. And then later on changes his mind, or as we might say in church language, repents, is representative of the people that are represented by tax collectors and prostitutes. Okay, that's the the, the point of reference there. And you'll remember from our previous studies that like, if you wanted to talk about the scourge of the earth in Israel in the first century, you talked about 
tax collectors and prostitutes. That was like the lowest of low, the least deserving, the least expected to receive anything from God. I don't know what a good parallel would be in our culture today, although I still think it'd be tax collectors in the IRS, scourge of the earth. Uh, I don't know what the second one would be. But that first son who says, no, I'm not going to do that, and changes his mind and does what the father was asking of him is representative of those kind of people. The second son represents the people to whom Jesus is speaking, the chief priests and the elders. They are the duplicitous or the religious fakers. Sure, dad, I'll do that. And then they don't do it. Right? They're the ones that put on a good face, put on a good show. They're the ones that are pretending. And then there's no actual fruit or anything right before God going on in the heart. And Jesus asked the obvious question, which of the two did what they wanted? And everybody knows, well, it was the first son who said, no, I won't, and his rebellion, but then later on repented and did what the father wanted. And so Jesus then explains the implications of that to them. Right? Jesus says, again, there in verse 4, what verse is it? That one, 31. Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. you got, it's hard for us to understand how that would have sounded in their religious ears. The chief priests and the elders of the people. The, this was the, the, if we could talk about it in this profane way, these were like the ultimate ranking religionists in Israel during the time. They were the ones that all the rest of Israel would have looked at and said, gosh, if anybody ever has it together, it's those guys. And everybody knew that the only people that didn't have it together were people like tax collectors and prostitutes. And when Jesus says to them that they are getting into the kingdom of heaven before you, I don't know a more offensive thing that you could have said to that group of people. Jesus is being like really mean to them right now. Like the gnarliest thing you could say, Jesus is saying. And Jesus is simultaneously upping the ante on his authority. They were perturbed by the authority he was taking, taking, and he's like, oh yeah, you think that was a big deal? Well, I'll decide who gets into heaven and who doesn't. How about that? The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Now Jesus sets himself up as the gate. The one who holds the keys, the one who decides who's in and who's out. He's like, you guys are uncomfortable with my authority? How about this? And in doing all that, he answers their question in a subversive sort of way, right? Because what he does is he ratifies or he confirms that the ministry of John the Baptist was indeed from heaven. Right? He says, listen, those who listen to John the Baptist are entering the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, by way of basic logic, which surely you get, if those who listen to John the Baptist are getting into the kingdom of heaven because they're repenting of their sins and turning to Jesus, then John the Baptist was acting on behalf of God. He was indeed a prophet from God. And the implications of that were that Jesus was the only unique son of God, the lamb of God, who was prophesied about. So he's answering them explicitly, but in the story form, slightly enigmatic way. But without question, he confirms the ministry of John the Baptist and everything that John the Baptist talked about was Jesus and his coming and who he was. Then he says to them at the end of that, 
even when you saw this, you didn't repent and believe. Notice it wasn't believe and repent because it wasn't an issue of true unbelief. It was an issue of being unwilling to accept the reality of who Christ was meant to be in their lives. And they were refusing to repent. They didn't want to come under his authority. And he says, even after you saw all this, the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the healing of the people, the withering of the tree, the preaching, everything that John the Baptist said, and you still refuse to accept my authority in your life? That doesn't make sense. Then he takes off the gloves and he gets super nasty. And he drills down further in the parable of the tenants. So we'll pick it up in verse 33, the last part. He says, listen to another parable. This is like a one-two punch here. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenant seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent others, and they did the same thing. And last of all, he said, I will send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. Jesus continues, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, Jesus asked them, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Pause right there. Jesus is asking them a question for the second or third time. I can't keep track. But he's getting them to think. He said at the beginning, what do you think? He asked them a question. Now he asks them another question. So, I mean, come on, you're you're smart guys. He's saying, what do you think the owner of that vineyard would do? And they've got the right answer. Jesus gives them just enough rope to hang themselves. They say in verse 41, well, He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Pause right there. That's such a nasty little jab in the middle of a big flurry right here. When you say to the religious leaders who were like supposed to know like the, the word of God from front to back, like haven't you ever read like this super obvious text about me? It's just a nasty little jab. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Now even Opsianti on his meanness and on what he says to them and his authority. First he said, the prostitutes and the IRS are getting into heaven before you. Now he says, no, nah, never mind. I'm taking the whole gig from you. The kingdom of God will be taken from you. He's talking to the chief priests and the elders who refuse to accept his authority. And then he says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Uh, We don't have time to get into that, but there's a lot of background in the Old Testament for that. It's speaking about the connected with the stone that the builders rejected that became the chief cornerstone. It's a pronouncement of judgment. If you stumble over Jesus refusing to accept, if you're tripped up over the clear identity and authority and power and work of Jesus and his cross and his resurrection, then that stone will ultimately crush you in judgment. Those are hard words. It gets harder for them because it says in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. So, 
a couple points of reference just to make sure we get the point. Jesus says there's this vineyard and there's a vineyard owner. So they would have known for sure, like in the Old Testament, Israel was often represented as God's vineyard. That point would not have been lost on them. Israel was represented as God's vineyard and God as the vineyard owner. We could point to a bunch of places, but how about Isaiah chapter 5? Where it says explicitly in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. And then some explication about that in the previous verses. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewn a wine vat in it. Pause right there. It's almost the exact language of the story that Jesus is telling. Like he, he wants them to get this point. He's not being overly evasive here. He like wants them to get this point. It's almost a one-for-one one, uh, reflection of language there. And then he says what they would have remembered from the text. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So he's got them thinking about what's going on, the God and, and, and the vineyard and the expectations of God and this disappointment that God had at this moment because of the life of Israel. And Jesus is bringing it right into the now. He's saying this is not only 700 years ago and what Isaiah was saying to my people. He's bringing it right into the now. The third point of reference we got to get is, right, God is represented by the vineyard owner. Israel is represented by the vineyard. The farmers are representative of the audience to whom he's speaking, the chief priests and the elders of the people. The farmers are those who were given stewardship in the vineyard. The farmers were supposed to be those who were tending to the vineyard, caring for the vineyard, defending the vineyard, nurturing the vineyard, feeding the vineyard, to see that the vineyard produced fruit for the vineyard owner God. They were supposed to be the shepherds in Israel, caring for Israel, feeding Israel, teaching Israel, leading Israel as servants of God so that Israel might produce fruit for the glory of God. And they were meant to be the religious leaders in Israel. As the farmers were, were in the text, they were meant to be accountable to the landowner, God. And there's a time when God came to settle accounts in the story. And he does that by sending his prophets, much like Isaiah, to call his people Israel to account. So the servants that he sends are representative of the prophets that God has sent to his people throughout time, from Moses to Isaiah to Amos to Zechariah to Micah to you name one. It's one of those prophets that he sent. And what did, in the story, they do with the servants that the owner sent? Here's your reading comprehension quiz. What did they do? They killed them right? Killed them, stoned them, treated them badly. Man, Jesus is getting really close to home on this. As, as like gnarly in your face as he's being, he's actually kind of trying to lay it out to them and, and lay it out to them in a way that's going to like draw them into this place of, of seeing and believing and so, so repenting. But at the end of the week, he's not going to tell stories anymore. At the end of the week, he's going to just like say it. 
So in a couple chapters in Matthew 23, he says what he's alluding to right here explicitly. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And then look at the gospel here. Look at the grace here. Look at the love of God, which is greater than the sin of the people. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. All of that is going on in this text and in this week. And so Jesus continues in the story and says, the landowner said the prophets didn't work out. They killed them and they stoned them. So I will send my son. Now, here's your, your, your final reading comprehension quiz. Who does the son represent? Jesus. Good job. Even better than first service. Jesus. And there's a lot that that means there when Jesus is saying, look, the landowner sent all of these different servants, servants, and his last final effort, his last final effort was to send his son. That is the way that God has worked throughout history. Hebrews will say almost the exact same thing at the opening of the book near the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1 about Jesus says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, right? Those servants represented in the story. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Look at that. It's almost a one-for-one reflection of the language. And through whom also he made the universe. You want to talk about authority. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, talking about the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, talking about his ascension. Imagine if you're one of these religious leaders at the moment and you're hearing the story and the lights are starting to go on because Jesus is literally just feeding it to them with all their background knowledge and everything that they should have understand. And it says in verse 45, they knew that Jesus was talking about them in this moment. And then when he pronounces judgment in verses 43 and 44, he says, this, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you? And this stone is going to crush you? And he answers their question really explicitly in verse 42. Read it again when he says, Haven't you ever read? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you ever read? Meaning you should have read because it was in your Bibles, he's saying to them. It was Psalm 118. You'll remember from previous teachings that in a Jewish context... When you quote a portion of the scriptures, because the Jews grew up memorizing the Old Testament, the Tanakh, because they had memorized it, it would bring, and it was meant to bring to mind, the broader context. We're not that biblically literate, most of us. But when you quoted a little portion, they'd be like, oh yeah, okay, that was the time, and and here's what that meant, and here's what else was said there. We see this throughout the Gospels and in the New Testament with the quoting of Scriptures. It's a great way for you to study the Bible. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, go back to the passage in the Old Testament and read it in context. You'll get what the New Testament is saying. So Jesus wanted them to get what he was saying when he said, haven't you ever read about the stone that the builders rejected, but that became the chief cornerstone? 
they would have remembered and gotten some of the broader context. And there's all these streams coming together at this moment. This would have had to have been in their mind, Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in, their, in our eyes. Pause right there. Remember, he would, as a rabbi, want them to bring to remembrance the verses word for word. And though he didn't say it, he was certainly expecting them to begin to think about verse 23. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You guys are balking at my authority. You guys are rejecting my authority. You're questioning the origin. But let me say explicitly, this is the Lord's doing, and it's awesome. That's what they were supposed to get. Verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Pause right there. Look at the grace. Look at the gospel there. These guys are the antagonists. They're the enemies. They're the rejectors. And even in this moment, Jesus is trying to draw them with cords of kindness. He says to them, rejoice and be glad in it. You guys, in your stubbornness, in your refusal, I want you to remember this phrase, to submit your lives to my authority, are thinking that somehow in that you'll maintain happiness, but joy is found in coming under my authority. And he's inviting them into that joy, even at this moment when he's beating the living tar out of them. Metaphorically, you should have laughed. Never mind, verse 25. (laughs) There you go, a little slow. Verse 25, oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. Right? Now he's bringing into their mind, wait, remember two days ago at the, when Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives on the donkey and the crowd was crying out, Hosanna, but they weren't going, Hosanna. <laughs> the crowd was crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna. It comes from that. Oh Lord, do save. It's the phrase, it's the word Hosanna in Hebrew. We beseech you, Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. And here's what else they said on that day, quoting from here. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. So if you are like these religious leaders and you're the crowd, because for sure there's a crowd now, and you're the crowd and you're listening to this stuff, and Jesus in the verses that he's bringing in is connecting all of these ideas that are floating around in their minds, the rejection of the stone, his identity is his stone, the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that there's light, you'll remember some of the gospels open up with, and a light shone in the darkness, that was Jesus, and even this part about the sacrifice, the Passover lamb, and what they were there that week to do in the temple mount was to bind a sacrifice to the altar and at the end of the week jesus himself would become the sacrifice who would go to the altar of the cross for them and if you were there and you were getting it it was like blowing your mind but they were stumbling over this thought that Jesus was to have supreme authority in their lives. This text is about authority and their rejection of it. And here's why they were rejecting it. They thought that if Jesus took and was given full authority in their lives, that somehow it would mean loss for them. Okay, here we go. 
gonna finish up with us now. Forget about these cats, this is about us. They thought that somehow, if they fully submitted to the lordship, to the authority of Jesus Christ, that it would mean some kind of loss for them. There is a lie that we give attention to daily. Because the Christian proclamation is Jesus is Lord. It's another way of saying Jesus has full authority. And we're not just supposed to pronounce it for the world or for the heavens. Jesus is Lord for the whole world. We're to pronounce it for our lives. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So it is salvific. It's a way that we're saved to say, Jesus, you have full authority in my life. And it is a way that we are meant to live out Christian discipleship, constantly bringing our lives under the authority of Jesus Christ. And the lie that we often believe is that if I bring this area of my life under the authority of Jesus, that will somehow mean loss for me. And that's a lie of Satan. Anytime anything is brought under the authority of Christ and submitted to him, it is always ultimate gain. Romans chapter 9 later on quotes this this passage and says explicitly, Just as God says in the scriptures, look, I'm placing in Zion a stone to make people stumble and fall. But those who have faith in that one will never be disappointed. Now, faith there in the idea of, yes, placing our faith in Jesus to be saved, but also a robust understanding of faith, like we talked about last week in the Sermon about Prayer, where we're not just saying we believe that he exists or that he's able, but we are saying we believe that he is good. And the religious leaders and the elders of the people refused to believe in the goodness of Jesus, so they thought that submitting to the authority of Jesus would somehow mean loss, and in that lie, Satan wins, and we can't let him win in our lives. We have to, in faith, believing that he is good and will never be disappointed in coming under his authority, submit the areas of our lives to his authority, which means in obedience whether that's in relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships together, if that's issues of forgiveness, bringing that under the authority of the Lord, if that's issues of substances or entertainment or our sexuality, The great lie of culture right now is if you believe what Jesus says about your sexuality, you will lose your identity. Man, that's a lie. That's what was going on in this text. The one who has faith in him will never be disappointed. Now let me say this. Since we're talking about authority, and people's refusal to submit to it. I think for a lot of us, what sits in the background of that is that at some time in our lives, we were deeply disappointed and wounded by authority figures. Mistreated, taken advantage of by somebody that we trusted and submitted ourselves to. It could have been a parent, could have been a spouse, could have been a sibling, could have been an aunt, could have been an uncle. Could have been a teacher. Could have been some governing authority. Could have been a church leader. 
We trusted them. We submitted ourselves to them. They in some way harmed us or defrauded us. And those wounds are real. And those wounds are deep. And those wounds are pervasive. And so that when we think about authority, our thoughts about authority are often colored by those deep disappointments. Those moments of trust where we were let down and wounded. I want to say two things about that. One, I, I certainly can't do anything about all the other wounds from authority figures in your life, but I will try to do something about the wounds in your life from authorities within the church. Let me just say, as a church leader who has great authority, on behalf of other church leaders who have deeply erred in their use of authority. Please forgive us. I'm not talking about me. Well, maybe I am to you, but I'm talking about maybe years ago in your life. I'm not saying we deserve forgiveness. That's the point. The church is messy. Its leaders are messy. They're often duplicitous. They do things, they say things, they exercise authority in ways that they should not, and it causes deep, deep Wounds that last for generations. And may I repent identificationally with those and say, please forgive your church leaders throughout the years. They don't deserve it. But what happens in our church then, in unforgiveness toward authority figures, is that a root of bitterness springs up. And the Bible says, by a root of bitterness, many in the church are defiled. And we're to blame, we who have defrauded you, in the wrong use of our church authority. But forgiveness is the key to well-being. The very thing that Jesus advocated for most in his existence is forgiveness. He bled and died on the cross for forgiveness. The number one thing that Satan advocates for in our existence is unforgiveness. Never are we closer to the influence of hell than when we refuse to forgive. Never do we go more toward Christ and who he is in his cross than when we choose to forgive. Again, maybe it was a family member, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was a teacher. And it's deeply colored your view of authority. Forgiveness is the key. And the second thing I'll say, that was number one, the second thing I'll say is we must let Jesus and his authority heal us in those spaces. We have to come to him for healing because Jesus is not like any other authority you've ever known. Though he has all the authority imaginable, Jesus was wounded for us and suffered on our behalf as the one with all the authority. So he's nothing like the authority that abused you or let you down or defrauded you or made you suffer. For Jesus himself in all of his authority suffered for us and was wounded for us and pierced for our transgressions. Therefore, that means we can trust Jesus. He has all authority. 
He's proven his love. He's proven his intent on our good by dying on the cross in our place. Therefore, in our relationships, in our sexuality, in our finances, in our substance use, in our entertainment, in bitterness, we can trust Jesus when he calls us his Lord to bring those areas under his authority. It's not even arguable according to what he did on the cross for us. That means we can trust him. He's literally in it for our good and his glory. And he's literally working all things together for our good and his glory. So, in those deep spaces of mistrust where we find ourselves in the story acting an awful lot like the chief priests and the elders of the people, we got to ask the Holy Spirit today to identify those spaces in our lives, those, those stubborn spaces and issues of rebellion that refuse to submit to Christ's authority, and we got to ask the help of the Holy Spirit to repent of those because in doing so is well-being. Peter said to Israel, repent, therefore, that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. And some of us are carrying wounds and bitterness and rebellions that are so old and rotten and festering, and they bring a stench to our lives. Peter said, repent, that times of refreshing and newness may come from the Lord. We can trust Jesus when he calls us to let something go or to grab hold of something, or to forego something, or when he takes away. He loves us ultimately. He proved it upon the cross, and he rose from the dead that we might have glorious new life in him. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your loving authority in our lives and in our world. And we, we ask now, Lord, please, God, we pray as your people, as your church, that you would teach us to repent of our rebellion. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you that when we put our trust in you, you save us from the penalty and the power of sin. Well, Holy Spirit, would you shine a light on those little stubborn places that are destroying us and working against our good, and partnered with lies in the enemy, and will you bring us into the truth today? Please, Holy Spirit, help us. We confess that we, too, are stubborn. That we're anxious about it. We think if we trust you with a certain thing, that'll mean loss for us, or less fun, or disappointment, or whatever. Help us, Holy Spirit, to say, Jesus is worthy of all my life, and all my stuff. And may we today in this building, in the house of God, in this place, in these next few minutes, may we find healing in your love, God. In the cross. In your victory over sin, the devil and even death. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the final authority. Rule and reign in our lives and rule and reign in our church, Lord. You're not only the chief cornerstone, you are the chief pastor, the senior pastor, the chief shepherd of this church. Help us to be a church that is fully submitted to you. We confess that we are 
stubborn and sinful and rebellious and prideful and arrogant and that we often use authority wrongly, we are asking God that you would cause us to be a church who are fully submitted to Jesus. For you are the great shepherd who loves us and gave himself for us and rose from the dead.